Give God's word and look at turn to Mark chapter number seven this morning. Mark chapter number seven. I think I read verses thirty one through thirty seven. As we continue the journey through the book of Mark, verse by verse. Great hope this morning that this is a blessing to you as we continue on. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of the reverence of the And as I said, we'll begin our reading in verse number 31. We pick up from where we left off last week in Christ's journey in his ministry um, throughout Galilee and then it turns to a place called Tyre and Sidon. And this is where we pick up. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephthah, that is, be open. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to pray. Father, once again, we love and thank you just for the privilege it is to enter into the throne room of grace. Father, I pray that we all recognize this morning, um, as we read earlier, what had to be accomplished for that to even be a possibility. Father, we were without Christ. We were aliens to the commonwealth. Father, we were outside the covenants. We were outside the promises. We were outside of sight. Uh, Father, we were outside of a relationship with you all together. Father, we were deaf and we were mute and we were blind and we were lame and we were dead in our sins. God, and um, through the gracious gift of salvation, Jesus Christ enters into the world on our behalf and accomplishes a mighty work that we could never. With all the ages, all throughout history, with all the tools and all the means uh, that you've given us in creation and in intelligence and intellect and notion and will, uh, never could we have uh, attained to the righteousness of God. Only as it attained by righteousness through faith. Father, and we are so thankful for Christ this morning and all that he's accomplished on our behalf. Uh, that he who has knew no sin might be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Praise the Lord and praise be to his name. And one of the great blessings and benefits is that we can enter in boldly now, that the veil's been torn and we have access into the very throne room of grace. So, Father, uh, may we come boldly this morning and ask you to meet with us. Father, may we come boldly this morning and beg you to speak to us through your word. Father, we recognize that um, outside of your plan, outside of your desire, outside of your will, Father, nothing will be accomplished this morning. Father, we come as a needy people and asking you to accomplish things that only you can accomplish. To take your word to places that only you can take. To ease and heal anxiety and only, uh, Father, because only you can. To give us peace in our souls, Father, to give us boldness, to give us courage, to give us faith, Father, to give us love, to give us grace, to give us compassion, Father, to give us those things that only Christ has. So, Father, would you impart those things to us this morning through your word? Would you help me, Father, as I come to dishonor you? 
Uh, God, not to uh, not to uh, be a great orator, Father, not to lack eloquent, Lord, just to be faithful to your word. God, that you uh, save my heart and my mind and ease our anxiety, Father, all of us, give us just a few moments so that we can take on you. Father, and would you just accomplish a mighty work by your spirit, your spirit uh, run, reign, Father, full and free in our hearts and lives today and take the word of God wherever it is. As the wind blows, God, uh, we don't know where it comes from and we don't know where it goes. And uh, when we leave here today, may we say, we don't know where the spirit came from and we didn't know where it was going, but it took us where you desired. You accomplished a mighty work, Father, so we leave this, leave this, time, leave this time, Father, in your hands. We just pray, God, your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, I know that some of you have not been with us, so just to kind of bring you up to speed, we've been trekking through, uh, once again, the book of Mark. What a blessing it's been just to um, see the uniqueness of what the Gospels have to offer. Of course, all the Bible um, is a blessing, and it offers uniqueness in a lot of different areas. Um, the Old Testament is a treasure trove of uh, God's character, His nature, His dealings with Israel. The epistles are just, you know, it's commandment. I love it. You know, if it was up to me, I would probably fall into an epistle and preach it uh, for the rest of my life because I'm kind of a black and white kind of guy. Um, I don't, I don't care much for gray areas. Tell me what to do and point me in the right direction, and I'll go. Paul's a lot like that. Um, he gives us clear direction um, all throughout his epistles, as well as Peter and the other authors that we have in the New Testament. Um, but the Gospels are precious in the sense that they lay before us not inherent um, commandment, although there is some. Um, oftentimes the Lord Jesus Christ preaches in a way to tell us um, what he desires and how he um, desires for us to live. Um, but more than that, we just have a historical account of narrative um, of our Lord and Savior and how he acted and um, his affections and his intellect, his emotion, his will. His tenderness, his holiness, his righteousness. Um, we just, it, it's somewhat like a picture, like a theater, a drama playing out, particularly in the book of Mark, as he moves from place to place. Um, and while we have so much, it's uh, seemingly at times so little. John says that even all the books, we have so much, but all the books in the world can contain um, all the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ had, had done and all the things that he had accomplished. Um, but he also tells us the reason why he gave us the miracles that he did and recorded those that we have, and it's particularly so that we would believe on the Son of God, that it would produce in us faith, that God would use it and work in us and bring dead men to life and give hardened hearts, um, soft hearts, and give those who are blind eyes to see and those that are deaf ears to hear. So that's my prayer for you this morning as we come to this portion of scripture that God would accomplish mighty works in your heart if you just look into his tenderness, his compassion, and his desire for us. I mean, we left off last week, you may remember, and again, I know some of you weren't here, so uh, just to kind of bring you up to speed, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is probably in his, uh, in between his first and second year of ministry at this point. He comes out the gate swinging. John the Baptist uh, lays the foundation work prophesied of old out of Malachi. Uh, we see the forerunner preaching the kingdom of God. The lamb who was slain would come uh, before the foundation of the world. Uh, the, the, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world would come. Behold the lamb, John said, who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus comes and he begins his ministry in, uh, in the nation of Israel. 
Um, as we talked last week, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's kind of summarized in the previous passage as he engages a young woman there um, whose little girl is demon-possessed and she comes devastated and she comes desperate and she comes in faith. And he gives such an interesting parable um, that even uh, throughout the week after being preached, and I don't know if I'll ever get it all out of my, in my mind and reconcile it all, um, but he speaks in somewhat of a parabolic form and says that... Um, it's not really your time yet. It's not the time of the Gentiles. The, the Jews are going to, the gospel is going to come, the ministry is going to come to the Jews, the nation of Israel first. And by means of that, um, the, the, the Son, the Messiah, will eventually, we know, uh, be crucified, and then the gospel will be born in um, a nation of Jews. There'll be, uh, the, the New Testament church will be somewhat be started and um, commenced in a Jewish convert. Um, somewhat out of a synagogue. 3,000 Jews are saved in the book, in, uh, the book of Acts at Pentecost. Acts chapter number 2, the Spirit of God falls upon them. Um, they speak with tongues of fire. Um, everybody from all the nations, uh, Acts chapter 2 says, there's Jews there from every nation under heaven. Um, God accomplishes a mighty work. They hear the word of God in their, in their national language, in their original tongue. As Peter stands and preaches, the gospel goes forth, and the Jewish church is born. They're no longer Jew, and they're now called in Acts chapter 10 and other places to lay aside the old traditions, the traditions of men, and even some of the, uh, the Levitical laws uh, out of the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, and uh, they're to take the gospel into all the world. And that was the time of the Gentiles. Eventually, Paul would be saved, and he would take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. You'll see churches popping up everywhere, here and there and everywhere, and, um, and that's the nature of how the gospel was to be spread. You see small, um, you see small um, pictures of that all throughout the gospel. But the gospel was always supposed supposed to go to the Gentiles. Uh, the nation of Israel at this time, though, was um, was steeped in nationalism. We want to talk about racism today and discrimination. Uh, much of the nation of Israel, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, um, were uh, were the tip top um, racists of the day. They didn't believe the Gentiles should be saved. They thought that they were dogs. They thought that they were less than. They thought that they were subhuman. And why? Because Israel had the covenant. They were born of the seed of Abraham. Thus, they had um, they were in, to be inheritors of promises that the Gentiles weren't supposed to be. Part of the reason that they're going to kill him. Why? Because um, in John, he has a conversation, or the, the, the Pharisees have a conversation with the high priest, and the high priest tells them that they need to do something about Jesus. Why? Because if they let him go, all the nations will follow after him. Their worry and concern was that the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. Um, why? Because Jesus often takes the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles being all of those people that are outside of the nation of Israel, outside the promises, outside the covenants. And one of those times is here. In the previous passage, that's exactly what we saw. We saw a unique time for Jesus to where, as far as I can tell, the only time that he goes outside of the, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, and he goes into a place called Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are a place that are um, equated in the Old Testament as well as the New um, with pride. And it just boggles the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite. They don't understand why he's going there. Well, the gospel was always supposed to go to the Gentiles. The gospel was always supposed to go to the world. Jesus Christ was always going to die for the nations, and that's something that they uh, need to learn. So that's where he goes. It's during this part uh, part of his ministry that he's outside the nation. He's crossed over into pagan borders, and he's accomplishing great and mighty works. 
Although the scriptures don't really tell us all the things that happened there. Although Matthew gives us some indication in Matthew chapter 15 um, of, of exactly what's going on. And it's very similar to what's been happening previously. People are gathering around. Um, they've heard about him. Even though he's not been out there, we learn in other places like Mark chapter 3 um, that people were coming from all around. Why? Because they'd heard of the works and the words of Jesus. While he wasn't going out necessarily um, crossing the borders in his early ministry, people were crossing the borders to him. Why? Because they had heard of this man um, that, whose words were unmatched and whose works were unmatched. So they would bring their dead. They would bring their lame. They would bring their lifeless. They would bring their um, their blind. They would bring their deaf. Um, why? Because they needed help and they wanted hope. It wasn't always for the, the most virtuous of reasons, though. Oftentimes it was just uh, to see a magician. It was to see a great act. It was um, David Copperfield. It was paganism. It was... Um, they wanted. They were. They were just enamored by the anomaly of someone uh, of such great stature and ability. So th don't think that everybody's coming necessarily by faith. Um, they're coming in by faith in something. They believe in something, but not necessarily um, because Jesus Christ is Lord. We read last week of a woman who did come in faith, though. She refers to him as the Son of David, the the Lord. Help me, O Lord! She cries out. Seems to have somewhat of an understanding, even as a pagan, as the gospel, no doubt, had reached into those areas because of the kingdom uh, being preached to those who would come um, from those areas. And the gospel going back, people are transformed. So in verse 31, we see again, the scripture says again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So he carries his ministry on. He actually goes up. If you were looking at a map, you would see that outside the nation of Israel, you'd find Tyre and Sidon. And it was in an area... Um, that was called the Decapolis. It had ten cities, uh, hence the word Deca means ten. Uh, so you find ten cities in this region. And what uh, Jesus is going to do, he's going to go up the coast, and he's going to come around, and he's going to go to Galilee. Um, a lot of people don't understand this. Um, I don't know that we're really supposed to understand all that uh, he was doing there other than ministering, because it seems kind of awkward. It would uh, his, his travel, if he's going to the Sea of Galilee, which should have been much more direct, um, it would be somewhat like getting to Duffield by going via Asheville. You know, it was, uh, it was a long trek around. So actually, contained in these verses are probably six to eight months of life. Um, he's just carrying along through Tyre and Sidon. He's going up the coast. He's going to Decapolis, going through the ten cities, and he's just ministering to people. Um, no doubt drawing crowds, no doubt doing miracles, uh, no doubt um, accomplishing the ministry that, um, that God desired for him accomplished. So six to, months, uh, six to eight months in, um, what do we see? We see something similar that we've seen in days past. You meet the man. In verse number 32, you see that then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment of his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. Up to this point in uh, Mark's gospel, anyway, we don't see any of this sort. We see him heal um, uh, almost dying people, uh, issues of blood. Uh, we see him calm the seas. We see him cast out the demon possessed. And we've not met a deaf man yet. I mean, you could ask the great question why, and I'll give you the reason why I think that, that is. Um, because all throughout the Gospels, uh, we don't just see Mark and John and Matthew and others um, just recording things to be recording things. What we see, if you'll study the Gospels and you'll labor in them, and God helps us as we labor, is you'll see oftentimes patterns. In this passage of Scripture, you see a pattern especially with the next passage of Scripture. In Mark chapter 6, we met uh, Jesus as he feeds the multitudes, particularly a Jewish nation. 
I mean, then what do you see? You see a disciple that just don't understand. And he actually looked at them. He said, you don't understand. You don't have, uh, do you not have ears to hear? Or do you not have ears to hear? Then what do you see? You see miracles immediately follow that, such as a deaf man being healed. In chapter 8, we're going to meet again 4,000 being fed um, with some fish and some loaves. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to look at the disciples and he's going to say, don't you have, you, you don't understand? Don't you have eyes to see? And then in uh, Mark chapter 8, in verse number 22, I believe it is, it's going to give an account of a blind man being, his eyes being opened. And what you're going to see is you're going to see um, patterns throughout Scripture that are going to reinforce because they're related. And that it's going to show the, the sovereign act and hand of God that if you're going to have ears to hear, um, then God's going to have to accomplish that through Christ. If you're going to have eyes to see, then um, Jesus Christ is the only one that opens um, the eyes of the blind. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. So here we see one that is unable to speak, the text says in verse number 32. They brought down one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And I think that in the 21st century we all understand kind of what that means. Um, not a lot of uh, in-depth uh, study needs to go into that. Um, deafness speaks of one who has, has an inability to hear with the ear. Um, an impediment of speech, you may have another translation that says something a little different. Um, the word, though, in the original comes from two words. It means to toil. It would be a compound word, to toil and to talk or to speak. Um, so it may be someone who is unable to speak altogether. Um, at the very least, it was one who has labored in their speech. Um, they had difficulty speaking. Uh, your deafness, whether it's congenital or whether it happens early in life, always comes and is associated with a difficulty of speech. Why? Because if you can't hear words, it's hard thus to form words. So it's normal for someone who is born with a type of this type of ailment to have difficulty communicating um, because of the deafness, because of the inability in the ear. In those days, um, this was um, this was um, a great tragedy. Why? Because it's not the 21st century, and they had no remedies. They had no hearing aids. They had no sophisticated practices to even aid in hearing. Um, nothing that would even at uh, least bear any weight upon it other than making them feel um, some sense of uh, false hope. We don't know exactly in this passage when the deafness began in this man's life. Um, it could have been congenital or it could have happened uh, or at birth or it could have been uh, much later in life. It wasn't common uh, in those, it wasn't uncommon in those days for a person or particularly a child to get an infection um, that would have lifelong consequences related to the disease process, one of many other complications would have been hearing loss. So it wasn't uncommon um, in a in a, a third world country, let's say, much like today in many third world countries, for children to grow up and to uh, eventually be deaf because of an infection or something of the sort, or even to be born um, with a mutation through uh, various means that would lead to hearing loss. Um, and when that happened, it would, also, it would, it would be accompanied with um, a difficulty speaking, an impediment of speech, trouble, um, laboring in speech. This was extremely unfortunate, a great tragedy. It was extremely sad, uh, because even in the nation of Israel, deaf mutes were categorized in such a category. So even within the people of God, the covenant people of God, who should have um, somewhat known better, um, they, they often got lumped in the category of the insane. Um, the rabbis argued so because they couldn't understand or know anything that they were thinking. Um, and many times throughout the scriptures, they'll actually argue as well. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees would come to people and say, why was this man born deaf? Or why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his mother? Or him or his father? 
But they would often attach um, this ideal with sinfulness or even with uh, demonic possession or demonic control. Um, And as a result, they weren't granted uh, normal human rights. Sometimes it was even worse. Some of the Pharisees and Sadducees that believed and taught that uh, these people were under a curse and under the judgment of God, and therefore they were unclean. I mean, it was arguably um, even more worse in the Gentile world. If you were to go over into the Tyre and Sidon, which we're going to meet that a man that comes from this area, um, and from more of a pagan type of world, um, there were some cultures that believed that people with this malady or this disease or this um, inability were monsters. And we could look throughout culture and find exact quotes of that. And they were such deemed as monsters um, that some were even killed and murdered. It would be like a you know a Salem witch trial uh, because they had they were this. They saw them as demonic and monsters, and thus they would take them out and um, they would use whatever means necessary, and they would crucify them. Um, sometimes even in a, a literal fashion. As somebody that's born deaf and mute. Uh, and this culture, whether it was Jewish or Gentile, um, was uh, led, led an extremely difficult life if they were led to, led to live at all. The ability to communicate was totally lost. Everything that would have been learned, it would have been learned through sight, feeling, or touch. How many days must he have seen people run away from him? Children pulled away from him for their own protection um, because their parents feared for their children's lives because of this this person who couldn't hear or speak. The anger, the fear, the sadness upon people's faces as they passed by, some maybe even his family. And he being trapped in his mind, only ever being able to communicate with himself, having no idea what's wrong. Um, A good chance that there wasn't even any form of communication such as sign language that he would have been able to communicate uh, with his parents, depending upon the pagan area. And if it was, it was a very uh, base form. Nothing like the system of uh, sign language that we have today. And his ultimate conclusion, no doubt, um, coming to um, the fact that it's him. He's the problem. Can you imagine ever being able to communicate and always being cast aside? A, a world of information and being trapped alone in your own mind and no one to talk about, no one to communicate, still a communicable being. Um, God giving him certain things within his body, within his mind, within his intellect, within his emotions, within his inner man that the image of God has written on him and he knows that he's supposed to communicate. Now he's in a culture and a society that, is, that he's bound to where he can't accomplish that. Now he's the enemy and now he's the villain. And I believe it was Helen Keller who was uh, deaf, mute, and blind altogether. And she was in a very similar scenario um, and after somebody coming to her, a Christian, and working with her, where she now she's able to communicate, um, and somebody gave her the gospel, and she said to them, I knew that God always existed, I just didn't know his name. Unable to communicate, unable to see, but still, and the law of God, the, 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 the testimony of God, the image of God still written upon their hearts. And this man, not blind, able to look up into um, the world. And as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Oh, how he must have yearned for that. But over time, um, possibly, if not him, and many other people in his condition, oh, how hardened they must have been uh, because they could not find a way to communicate with him. Um, they became the villain of their, one of the many villains of their day. This man, though, is 
subject to a life of stigma, rejection, and sadness up to this point. This man is what we could say is one of the lucky ones. The text says, Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment of his speech, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. They, uh, being uh, they who brought him to Jesus' feet, who we don't know exactly, probably family, probably friends, probably people who cared, but honestly, we don't know. For all we know, it could have been a couple of young men enamored by the magician uh, who just wanted to see a miracle in those days, so they, they pick up the, the charity case and bring them and throw them before. Um, they're pagans. They don't, uh, they don't care. They don't think that they're going to become unclean. The Jewish person probably would never do that. Why? Because then he would become ceremonially unclean and be able to, unable to, to approach God. So really, we want to make it a virtuous case. I think that it probably was, but we don't know for sure. Um, but I think that it probably was. Why? Because the text says that they begged him. They implored him to put his hand on him. This type of begging, of course, is hard to find unless there's some sort of personal attachment. Um, why his hand? Because that's the general way that Jesus healed people. We saw that all throughout the book of Mark, Matthew, and John, and Luke. There's a tenderness, a compassionate idea of touching. But I also believe that Jesus, just in the midst of Jews, just touched the, uh, the seemingly villains or unclean people just to preach a message in the face of the Jews. Um, because they often argue that Jesus was defiled because of that. Um, and he's going to preach against um, the, the ignorance of that and the fact that people were defiled just by touching um, a deaf man. I think one reason he does it is just to, just to stand in the face of the traditions of the, of the elders um, and to show them that, that uncleanness is not born um, outside or external, but it's on the inside, and he just got done preaching that message. Um, and then we see he's enabled to speak. Um, so he's unable to speak, and then he's enabled to speak. Um, we find that there's a good chance that there's chaos, that there's a crushing crowd, that there's jostling going on, and Jesus takes this man aside in the passage. Uh, verse number 33, he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his, his tongue. Such tenderness here. He shows this man such care and attention. Chances are he's never received from any stranger. He pulls him away in the, from the crowd and loves him with a love that had probably been a rarity in his life. And again, you have to wonder what's going on in the guy's mind, right? We want to sound like it's virtuous, and this guy wanted to be. Sometimes you have to wonder why in the world they had to carry him. He could walk, and he could see. Um, but he was a deaf mute man. Up to this point, Jesus is in, again, probability. The last uh, second year of his ministry and the early third year of his ministry, he spent years now traveling throughout Israel performing uh, phenomenal works, uh, claiming to be the Messiah, fulfillment of all the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He travels throughout the Gentile camp and throughout the Jewish camp. Um, and even places he's not been has overwhelmingly been affected by his ministry. Words that the religious elite admit are unmatched. They say no man spoke like this man. Um, words that are unmatched. Who is this man? He's a prophet of old. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist. Nobody. But truly, this is the son of God. Surely this man is from God, they say. These are just some of the conversations going on. It's hard to think about someone in Israel and the surrounding areas, even if they're Gentiles or pagans, that haven't heard about this man, right? Well, here's a man that has never heard about this man. Nor could he even ask. Where are, are, are nor could he, he know. I often ask, where are they all going? As he sees crowds hustling to some unknown place. Nor could he push through the crowds because he's seen as unclean. 
They would have crucified him. So imagine what's going on in his mind um, as they come to get him. Maybe that's why they had to carry him, bring him, throw him at his feet because he had no idea. He had no clue. He has no idea who this man is that stands before him. He's not seen his unmatched works, nor has he heard of his unmatched word. So what does Jesus do? Jesus communicates with him only the only way naturally that he can at this point. Through touch. Through touch. That's what we see in verse number 34. Then looking up to heaven, or he, 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 he put his fingers in his ears and he spat and he touched his tongue and then looking up to heaven inside and he said to him, Esafata, that is, be open. He communicates with this man the only way that he could at this point. Again, you can imagine what's going through this guy's mind. This guy's mind, who is this man? Again, he's not heard about him. He's not, he has no idea of the, the ministry that he's going on. Why? Because he can't communicate with anybody. Uh, he doesn't know that this is the Son of God. As far as he knows, he looks and it's just another man. And he wonders what in the world's going on. So Jesus knows that and he communicates with him the only way that uh, really this man can communicate. It could be to signify to this man that he knew. Most people believe that that's true. I, I do as well. That he knew what was wrong with the man and to communicate with him um, what he's about to do for the man. Also, it may have communicated to him that he wasn't afraid of him. What a comfort, you know. We're living in a, an age in which everybody's afraid of everybody now, cultivated by a pandemic and by a virus. Um, you know, and you wonder, everybody's standing not six feet away, but ten feet away or twenty feet away. And, uh, we're scared to death of, of one another. And it's cultivating a lot of fear. Imagine the fear that's going through this man's mind, or the fear that's going through the people as they approach this man. And you can imagine as you know, the kids run away and as everybody else run away, you can imagine um, what's going through his mind as somebody actually touches him. What a rarity it must have been for anyone to actually reach out and offer him a hand. For someone to think that he wasn't an outcast, that he wasn't insane, and that he wasn't a monster, Jesus puts his fingers in his ears. Secondly, he, after spitting, he applies the saliva to the tongue of the man. Why, again, in my opinion, to uh, relay to the man that he, he understood, right? Um, in our day, the man would have ran away. Kids um, don't go home and imitate Jesus in this aspect, okay? Um, don't utilize this to tell your parents that I'm just... I ask, my question, I ask myself this question, what would Jesus do? So I spit, that's my brother's son. Um, don't follow uh, Jesus in this way. You're not the son of God. Um, but he does something unique. Again, I think because this is the only way that this man can communicate. Um, so he touches the affected portion, um, the impediment of, of speech. Number three, he looks up to heaven. So you see these three signs that he's communicating to this blind and mute man. He doesn't communicate in a in a verbal fashion, but he communicates in the way that he can communicate. And there's a third sign. He looks up to heaven and he says, I think what he, when he does that, he's saying, um, what is about to happen is that uh, is, is a result of divine power. He would have the blind man may not have understood a lot, but I think he would have understood heaven. Or at least the divine nature. Why? Because even the pagans understood that the heavens declare the glory of God. It seems that he desired to indicate that this, or at least Mark desires for us to understand that he was communicating something to this man by looking up to heaven. Every word is, um, is recorded for a particular purpose. But this is no mere magic trick. But this is God working through him. 
I mean, what he wants to communicate is that God is working here. And that God's about to accomplish a mighty work. And then number four, he signs. Doesn't seem like a great deal, possibly, to you. But it did to Mark. It did to Peter. Who I think is kind of in uh, the, the under the foundation of this epistle. I think Peter is the apostle that's feeding Mark. Um, a lot of these accounts, and I think the, the, the phrase there, Ephesus, um, is, significant, is significant for that as well. Um, but he saw, he saw fit to communicate to us that Jesus Christ signed. Uh, no doubt the man would be pinpoint focused upon Christ, watching his every move. And even though he couldn't understand or hear um, inherently the sign, there's no doubt in my mind that he could have known exactly what that was. You can look at a person from far without reading their lips or knowing what they're going to. You can see their chest puff up and the inhale and the exhale of the great sign. What that must have communicated to him. And you know as well as I do what a sigh often means. It often means reluctance, reluctance irritation, or relief. Sympathy um, in some way or empathy. I don't think that Christ's intention is to communicate reluctance though or irritation or even relief. It could be very well that this is an expression of sympathy, compassion, and relief. Entering with the sufferings of this man. You know, the very same term is used in other places in the New Testament, particularly by the Apostle. Paul uses it in uh, Romans chapter 8, 23, um, whenever he, he, he writes these words. Not only that, but we also have, uh, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even within ourselves, grown within ourselves. Eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What's that in context of? The, the, the present sufferings. Paul's looking around the world and he says, these present, present sufferings are only for a time. Therefore, we groan. Creation also groans. We groan within ourselves, waiting for what? The adoption, the redemption of our bodies. A time when the suffering cease. 2 Corinthians 5, 2, Paul writes these words as well. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That temporally speaking, there are certain sufferings of a fallen, sinful world that overwhelm us at times. And no doubt in my mind that Jesus is looking as we try to fill the gaps of the great side at the sufferings of this man. And as the writer of Hebrews writes that he enters in with us, that we have a high priest that understands the feeling of our infirmities. Um, therefore, he enter, is constantly, continually interceding for us. That he enters in with him in some way um, in the sufferings here. And you see this great uh, word, epithetos. I'm not stuttering, it's literally epithetos. Um, it literally just means to be open. Chances are this is an earmate term. You may know that uh, in, the, in the day that Jesus is living in, they're not having um, a conversation in the language that it is that the New Testament's written in, um, King James, English, or Greek. Um, it's, uh, it was originally written in Greek, but it was spoken initially, probably in Aramaic, that was the common um, language of the tongue. And very few times is Mark and the other gospel writers record the very words that were spoken. I think one of the reasons they may do that is because it was so influential and impactful upon their lives that they would never forget the words. As they looked in other places, and you hear the, the, the groanings upon the cross as uh, Jesus Christ cries out. It's in Aramaic. It's in a different tongue. Why? Because those are words that Peter uh, probably never forgot. And he saw a man who was dead in his ears and dead in his tongue. 
um, to be raised to life. Um, something phenomenal. This man was deaf and mute from his birth. This is even more phenomenal. Now, this is only, this is kind of uh, speculation, but this isn't just a, 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 a regeneration or a giving life of physical inabilities. But if this man was, um, if this man was uh, deaf from birth and mute from birth or difficulty communicating from birth, um, inherent in this um, miracle is even more than just repairing the physical maladies of this man. Um, he actually, in it, it says that in just a moment, he spoke plainly, right? His tongue was loose, and he spoke plainly. The impediment of his tongue was loose. Um, the term there, loose, is, is, is actually a word that every other time in the New Testament, I believe, is used to speak of chains being broken. In Acts and in Luke, um, you read of uh, a demon-possessed man who was chained and bound, had guards over him, and he broke the chains and ran into um, the desert, as it were. I'm away from the people. It's the exact same where the chains of his tongue was broken. And he spoke plainly. He communicated. He's about to go preach um, that very um, reality to all of Decapolis and all of the surrounding area. That if he was mute and deaf from his very birth, that inherent in the miracle is not just a, a, a revitalization or a fixing of um, the ear problem or the uh, the tongue problem, but, but also communication of language. That he had never had before. You say, is that even a possibility? Of course it is. Acts chapter 2. I mean, Peter's preaching and multiple, and people hear from multiple different languages in their own tongues. One guy standing up preaching to the nation, and they all hear it in their own language, a language that they had not known before. I mean, never would have known without the supernatural work of God. Thus the gospel goes forth. Thus you see the, 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 the chains, the bondage of his tongue being loosed, and he speaks plainly. That, that word there comes from the word, it's a medical term that we use oftentimes in our day, orthopedic or ortho, um, or orthodoxy. It literally means right. But it's often used in medical terminology to speak of something that is broken and made straight, like a bone, right? The physician, a man comes with a broken leg, and the physician comes and he sets it back straight, and he puts it back in its right place. And that's the idea here. The idea is, is that this man was broken. His, 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 his tongue was bound, his his, his ears were bound why? by sin, by fallen nature, by this world. And Jesus Christ made it right. He made it right. He set things back in order. Do you get the same kind of idea with the sigh of Paul? Right? Like he groans within himself. Jesus groans within himself for things to be made right. He looks into a fallen world. Paul looks into a fallen world. He sees sin within himself and he's struggling. And, and, and no wonder we groan. You look at the world. You look at media. You look at the news. You look at your family. You look at your children. You look at yourself and, and, and just the, the struggle with sin. And you, and you know it's wrong. And it causes you to groan within yourself. That things would be set right. Jesus is often groaning, entering in with our sufferings, knowing that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. That in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. And that's what you kind of get the idea of here. In verse number um, 37, they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He has done all things. And he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. You know, you could literally translate that. He made all things well, or he makes all things good. He makes all things excellent. He makes all things complete. Every person that I, I read or listened to this week, 
Um, they draw a parallel, and I think it's a rightful parallel to another place in the beginning, in Genesis chapter number one, um, and all throughout, where God makes the first day, and you know what he says? He says it's good. And when God makes the second day and everything in it, you know what he says? He says it's good. Finally, there's a culmination where he looks at everything and he says it's very good. He made all things well. He made all things right. Those things were in order and they glorified God. And I think that that's the idea here. That Jesus is sighing because he knows that the fallen world has overwhelmed the world and even uh, particularly in this man, thus he sighs. Paul sighs because he longs for all things to be right. Creation in and of itself even knows, Romans chapter 8, groans within itself to see the redemption of the sons of God and to see the world in a, in a, in a new way, in a new heavens, and a new earth. Thus Jesus accomplishes and they recognize it that when Jesus does things, he does them well. Even the pagans recognize that. Right? Like this man never spoke. This man never heard. And like whenever Jesus does it, whenever that magician did it, you know, it was more than just lengthening his leg. <laughs> it was more than just healing and aiding a back pain that returned the next day. It was more than just um, a, a false teacher or a false prophet or, or this person seeking after money and they're making it up. When Jesus, they're saying when Jesus does these things, like he does them perfect and he does them well. We trust that after this man walked away, he was never deaf again. He was never um, mute again. That Jesus made in his speech, Jesus made in his hearing all things right. Jesus orders him to speak, and he does. He does. Um, and so what's the significance? I think that's the significance. I think the significance here, you know, um, immediately his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. And then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more they wisely proclaimed it. Um, and I don't advocate for disobedience, but you can kind of understand why they did. Um, and they went around and proclaimed it everywhere. And they were all astonished beyond measure. That term astonished there is out of this world. Um, you could almost translate it. It's a unique word that means abundance beyond more than you could ever ask or think. Beyond measure, say, he has done all. That was the message. They went around saying, he has done all things well. And there's a good reason. Um, it, it's kind of mind-boggling inherently to think about why he would um, encourage them not to, um, to spread the message. And we talked about some of that um, last week. And um, I'll give you a reason why I think that he did this week. One reason that I think that he told him not to this week is because in Luke chapter uh, 9, and you can turn there later, there's an account where the disciples um, are engaging with Jesus, and Jesus commands them not to go out and to tell others. Why? He says, because I, I still have to suffer many things. That the gospel wasn't complete yet. And you can imagine the type of um, the publicity that he's getting. Uh, you, you can imagine the type of publicity he's getting because you know the day and the hour you're living in, right? What often do you hear of when you hear of revival? Do you hear of the gospel of the kingdom going forth, Jesus Christ being preached? Or do you hear about, you know, down in Church Hill or across the world or in Africa or in Asia or in the UK, God is mighty at work. Is he, you know what he's doing? The, the lame are walking. Um, the blind are seeing or the legs are being lengthened or this or that. Back pain's being relieved. So what do they do? They flock for that reason. Right? They don't flock for the gospel. 
They don't flock to the kingdom being established. They don't flock, flock because um, you know, Jesus is raising the spiritual dead or enlivening the spiritually dead or opening the spiritual eyes that oftentimes the negative publicity. And at this time in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ is somewhat trying to get away um, and offer his disciples a, a, an in-depth uh, ministry. But I think that that's possibly what he's, what he's doing there. Um, I think that also what Jesus is doing here is already what we have been talking about. If you were to look at Mark chapter 7 and the passage that we just read, um, you, you don't get the idea in, um, in the English language, or probably in most of your translations. But you would get it if you um, went to the original language that it was written in. In verse 32, the Bible says, And they brought to him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hands on him. The term their speech um, is not the same word that is used in verse 37, where he says he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Right? So these are the people that are going out and they're preaching this message that the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's not the term. So that's the people and what they're saying. That's not the term that Mark uses, though. Mark uses a different word. And in the time that Jesus is ministering and the apostles um, are writing the word and they have the word, uh, and they're, they're pinning down to the inspiration of God, um, Mark utilizes a word here that he would have probably, at least the apostles, would have known. It's a word that was written in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Um, you say, I thought the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was. Circulating throughout the time of Jesus, though, in the apostles, was a Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. It was all translated in Greek. Why? Because the world, um, it was it was the universal language. It was almost like English today. You can go to a number of places, and while they'll have their own common language, or uh, they'll have their own language, they'll, often places, places will have a common language known as English. Why? So they can communicate with foreign people. During Alexander the Great's reign, he, he pretty much conquered the known world and established Greek as the known language. So what happens is that um, most nations are taught Greek, and the Old Testament is translated in Greek. So much of the quotations that you have in the New Testament are actually not the apostles or even Jesus quoting the original Hebrew, but the Septuagint or the Greek New Testament, which they probably read um, very commonly. Um, and the, the only time that you find this word in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 7 and verse number 32. Well, there's only one other instance in the Old Testament that it is used as well. And that is in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse number 5 that Sam read at the opening of the um, ser service. And you read these words in verse number 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And the idea here, um, as I'm going to set the stage, is that all throughout Isaiah, especially the first 35 uh, chapters, is preaching judgment, judgment, judgment. Here is almost a dissection in the book where it almost divides it directly into, in the last 30 one to 32 chapters are given over to the coming Christ, the Messiah, the kingdom that is to come, and the glory of the saving servant. 
and the servant songs all throughout the uh, Isaiah 40s and 50s, and you see the glory of Christ, much of which will be quoted from the Old Testament to the New. Why? Because the Son of God, the Messiah of the Old Testament, is coming to make all things new. What does he say in verse number 3? What will he do? What will happen in that time? If he strengthens the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. And this is hard reading the first 34 chapters. You know? Why? Because they're looking around and chapter 33 and 34 it's a place that's desolate. Judgment is coming to the nation of Israel because of the disobedience and because of the, uh, the, 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 the irreverence, uh, the disobedience to the law of God. And judgment is coming. And it's almost pictured as a desolate place, lifeless. Enter Isaiah 35 and you see the glory of the new heavens, the new earth, and the um, the ultimate end of God. And you read these words. Say to those who are fearful, be or fearful hearted, be strong, don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then these words, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb sing. Thought for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And what Isaiah is writing, I'll be speaking of a time when all things will be made right. The Son of God will come and the Messiah will come and he will set things straight. Some of which will be, and all of which will be, Deafened ears and um, stayed tongues and strengthless, weak legs. I mean, that's what the kingdom, in its essence, will look like. And he'll make all things right. Did you know that God made the ears to listen to his voice and obey his word that we might live according to his will? Exodus 15, verse 26 says that. If you diligently heed the voice of our, the Lord our God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought to the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. We see all throughout the word a consistent appeal to give God what? To give him your ear. To give him your ear. Why? So that you may walk in his ways. Scripture is explicit, though, that our problem is fallen sons of Adam and the things that went wrong, but sin entered in, and now men are by nature deaf to the voice of God. Isaiah 48, 8, surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not open. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and called a transgressor from the womb. Jeremiah 7 says, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Psalm 58, 2, in heart you work wickedness. Psalm 58, verse 5, why? Then the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of the serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear. It has no ear to hear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charmers ever so skillfully. What he's saying, he's saying that in the fall, in Adam, in us, we're born into this world without an ear to hear. And there's coming a day when Messiah will come in which he will make all those things right. 
where now you can obey the voice of God. As I said over and over again, don't you have ears to hear? Don't you have eyes to see? Can't you hear? And to the churches of Revelation, to Ephesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea is that when Messiah comes, he will be able to say, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And that Messiah would also be able to say, you have opened my ear to do the will of the Lord. The idea is, is that in Mark chapter 7, that these things are real, true, physical realities. That they are recorded so that you would see and know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and to know that when He comes, not only will the physical ear be opened, but it will be representative of a kingdom to come in which He would open the deaf ears of all of those who have no ear to hear Him. That through the gospel message, He would open the ears of the dead. And just as God makes the ear to hear, and makes the mouth, He makes the mouth to speak forth the word of God in His praises. So we're commanded that this book of the law not depart from our mouth. This man is a visual representation, somewhat metaphorical, symbolic, of all of us who are born into this world who cannot praise God because we will not praise God because our hearts go estranged from, from the womb and are born in wickedness. But God commands us to sing a new song. How can we do that? How can you do that? How can any of us do that? You know? You say, so God commands us to do something that we can't do? You know? People argue with the doctrines of grace all the time <laughs> because of that reason. You mean God commands the world to repent and believe and they can't repent and believe? Listen, that's all God does throughout the gospel. Hey, lame man, walk. <laughs> there are people are looking at him. Don't you know that guy's dead? From, he's been lame from his birth. Don't you, like, don't you see the inconsistency? You're asking him to do something that he can't do. Why? Because inherent in the word and inherent in the command is the ability that God delivers the ability and the grace extended to accomplish what he requires of that man. That when the gospel goes forth in the hearts and the lives of these people and they're able to do things, that Peter walk, like walk on water. Nobody in the world has ever done that. We know the physical constitution, the molecular structure, and I know for, without a shadow of a doubt that that's not going to happen. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus, didn't you know he's been dead for three days? He can't do that. God commands men and enables men all the time according to his will to accomplish that which they could never accomplish and, that, and thus accomplishing um, enable, and thus securing the glory of Christ. That's what he says. He says, you're called to sing a new song. Well, what do we know about the tongue? That it's a dangerous member. James tells us that it's supposed to be the fountain that pours forth fresh blessing, but instead it's a fountain of bitterness pouring forth nothing but cursing. And when Messiah comes, you'll be able to say, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak the word in due season to him who is weary. That he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear um, as the learned. And also Messiah will be able to say in Isaiah 35 that he will cause the tongue of the mute to shout for joy. That when G The idea is this, that when Jesus 
comes in all of his glory that when he dies upon an old tattered battered tree the death that you and I are to deserve that Jesus that God the Father will exalt him to the right hand of himself and give him a place and a name above every other name that that, that every uh, that, that his very word every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess he'll open up every tongue that he desires that, that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that when he set, secures that in Christ, that when the gospel goes forth, he'll open up deaf ears. He'll open up mute, um, mute impediments of speech. And those who could not sing to God, because they would not sing to God, are now enabled. And those who could not hear the voice of the Lord, because they would not hear the voice of the Lord, now will, with open arms and open ears, love the voice of the Lord because they love the Lord their God. That these spiritual realities, that these are physical realities, symbolic and metaphorical of a spiritual reality of a new heavens and a new earth, of a new kingdom um, that is to come, that is already here but not yet fully consummated. That all throughout the gospel, you look around here, you know, and some people would come on, come in and say, this is... Uh, you know, this is not a miraculous church. The charismatic movement would come in and say, where are all the miracles? And we would say, look at that person, you know, who was given over to drugs all their life, who hated God, who walked in a different way, in a different manner. God gave him ears to hear. And now he has a wife and he has children and he's discipling them. They have, they have family worship every single night. He's not perfect, but he's moved. He's a new creature in the Lord. Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And he who could not hear the voice of God now hears him as he opens his word and the Spirit comes to him. You see that person over there um, who gave the first three decades of their lives of blaspheming God? Now they sing the praises for our Lord. And that song that we sang this morning, um, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, they joined in with an angelic chorus. And they were invited to speak of the, the, the great glories of the Most High God. And that there are miracles all around. And that is actually God's ultimate goal. That his goal is not for the men to run around and spread miracle, miracle, miracle. But to spread kingdom, 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 gospel, gospel, gospel. Five of the last thing that we want to do is invite people in here and think that the glory of Christ's kingdom is in um, open physical ears and open um, opened mouths and then sprints to the feet. The true miracle of Jesus Christ and all of his glory um, is in the spiritual reality that there is a, a 7 billion people today born into this world enemies with God. And that day in and day out of gospel, the foolishness of preaching goes forth and God converts them and gives them mercy and a love that they never desired. And therefore, why? Because now they can hear his voice and they can sing his praises. Jesus commands the ears to be open. And when goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Why? Because we deserved it? No. You look at this man and you wonder, does he deserve it? And you may say, because of the most pitiful case that I've presented today of the nature of this man, if anybody needs Jesus, he does. But honestly to God, um, he's a picture of all of us. And when the goodness of God and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared to save us, why? Because we deserved it? No. Did this man deserve it? No. Do we deserve it? No. 
Because we're the right guy or the kind of guy that God uses? No. Because we have a skill set that makes us indispensable? No. Because our IQ is off the chart and God couldn't pass by us? No. Because we're good enough? No. No, the text says, as Paul writes, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. So through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom God has poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are only here today, this man is only saved today because Jesus would not say, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. But Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And seeing us in our misery, he doesn't simply say to this man, oh, what a pity, I must help him. But he takes the actions necessary to relieve him from his distress. He doesn't simply come with an outline of how to improve his situation or how to turn over a new leaf. He comes for him in all of his glory, accomplishing what he cannot accomplish and doing in him what he cannot do himself. And the same, he comes to us. That's the point of the passage. That we look into a world that is broken and we look into a world that is misery and we understand that the world is not apart from us, that it is the way that it is because we are the way that we are. That the damage and the destruction and the misery that goes on all throughout the world is not inherently in creation itself, it's inherently in us. And the glory of Christ is that he looks at that and he doesn't say as in Isaiah 33 and in Isaiah 40, 34 and many other places previous, uh, Father gives them what they deserve. But he enters in and becomes like us to live as us and to die for us. Why? So that he could accomplish for us what we cannot accomplish ourselves. And thus he looks at us today as we look at generations uh, in millennia, the last uh, two millennia past and even prior to that, and he looks at deaf men and he says, hear. Through the gospel he looks at blind men and he says, see. Why? Because you deserve it? No. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords and he's taken into the world and the father is blessed in the kingdom which will, there will be no end. And thus he establishes it. There, then and there, and it's small little pictures. You know, I look at you on many days and I see the glory of Christ in you and it makes me groan within of what it will be like on that great day when he makes all things new. What a blessing of a day that that will be. But we see little pictures of that, but we are not without that today because we see little pictures of that every single day. As we see um, our wife repent or we see our husband repent or we see them express love because they were unlovable and we see them do things that they could not do, right? A hearing is only part of it. It's a window into all the graces that God extends to us that we could not do, right? You see people that are merciful who could not have been merciful. We see people that are loving that could not have been loving. We see people that are gracious that could have not have been gracious. We see people that are holy that could have never been holy. God goes all throughout the Old Testament. God goes through all throughout the New Testament. And he says, um, do this. And he commands us to do that. And we are people without hands. And we are people without feet. And we are people without ears. And he looks and he says, live. When he could have looked and he, and he could have said, die. And he would have been right and just in doing so. But he enters in so tenderly and so compassionately. And he takes his fingers and he puts them in our ears. And he takes his, his saliva and he puts them on our tongue. And he takes his, his hands and he puts them on our feet. And he says, live, young man, live. And love, young man, love. Run, young man, run. 
Love your wife, you may run. You know what that's like. You do now. Because you have the love of Christ. I, it, it boggles my mind. I try to find a systematic way to teach you how to love your wives. I want a systematic way to teach me how to love my children. I want six do's and don'ts of how to be merciful. You know? God, I can't. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to teach you that. Other than to like Christ before you. That he may say, look and live. That he may see the glory of Christ and the mercy and the grace that he's extended to you. You know, but so many people are laboring in and of themselves, angry, bitter, or trying to gain some stature with God with six dudes and don't on how to live. You know, and you know, we walk away from sermons and we walk away from the scriptures and we walk away um, from certain things, you know, that, that seem so clear to some of us. Um, but you walk away, maybe it's because we don't have ears to hear. You know, that's over and over throughout the scriptures. The New Testament, particularly, Jesus is saying, Let him who have ears to hear, let him hear. In the previous passage, he says certain things that, that, that you wonder what in the world do those things mean, and the lady understands it. You know, like God enlivens her hearing. God enlivens her mind. God gives her eyes to see. And she responds. You know? Like that's the gospel. Like we don't make men live. We don't persuade our technician. Our technique is not is not uh, perfect. That's why the men look and they are astonished. Why? Because when God does this, when Jesus, when this man does that, he does it well. And he does it perfect. And he does it complete. When other men do it, like inevitably it fails. It's temporal at best. When we've got men standing behind pulpits and lecterns and leading their homes um, that, are, that, are, that are offering six best techniques to be merciful to your wife. You know? Six best techniques to convert your children and to make them great little, great little Pharisees. You know? No wonder it's failing. No wonder it's falling short. I bet you today, men, that the, 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 the thing that you must do is to lay before them Christ. Why? So that he may enable them to do things that they cannot and could not ever do. Stop laboring in your home as their savior. You are not. You may be, you may be king, you may be um, prophet, and you may be priest of your home, but you are not the king, the prophet, and the priest. And if God will have mercy and grace upon your home, then God will have mercy and grace upon your home for the sake of Christ, not you. So spend every single day bringing them before Christ. There's your six steps. Wake up in the morning and lay Christ before them. When lunch rolls around, lay Christ before them. When they lay their head down at night, lay Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection before them. Men, when you're working on the car, lay Christ before them. Men, ladies, when you're teaching your children how to prepare dinner and to take care of the home and how to love your husband, teach them that the only reason that you love your husband is because Christ loves you. And had it not been that he spoke and opened your ears up and opened your eyes up to your own depravity, you never would have loved him, but you would have carried on loving yourselves. Lay Christ before them. Who is this man before them? What is he doing to my ears? Why does he touch my tongue? What is this sigh that he gives? I remember saying that. Do you? Who is this man who loves me when I am so unlovable? Who is this man who pursues me when I am so unpursuable? Who is this man who extends mercy to me when I deserve justice? Who is this man? This man is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the creator of all heaven and earth, who enters in for you to die for you to accomplish something for you that you never could. 
when you understand that, you're giving your ears to hear and eyes to see. And thus, it's hard to contain within yourself to speak about what he does to the deaf and what he does to the mute and not carry that into the world and tell all the world. But the depravity that you're looking at is not in a social structure. Um, it's not in a political um, uh, agenda. It's in the men that lead those. Their only hope is that the gospel would go forth and that God would give men ears to hear and eyes to see. Do you have those today? Or do you constantly, continually come to the Word and sit before me and walk away and say, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and it could just be me. I know I talk fast sometimes and it's hard to communicate. And maybe you don't hear it. Um, but do you constantly and continually um, walk away without Christ? If so, I'd love to take a Bible and show you all that He's done to save sinners. Um, all to save sinners. And if you do have ears to hear and eyes to see, then let us be like these men. Who now the gospel has been opened up to the nations, and we have every right and privilege and promise of God uh, to take it um, into every nation, tribe, and tongue, and He will accomplish what He desires. First, beginning in our homes in Jerusalem, Judea, and let us take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because we are still, um, our minds are still boggled at what this man will do in us and for us. Let's pray. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon the name of the Lord. Father, your mercies are true every single morning. But not just in a general way, also in a specific and a special and a particular way. Particularly to your people. Father, we praise you for the mercies and the grace and the love you express all mankind as you allow your son to rise upon them this morning. And once again, it will set. We glory in the common grace to all men, more than we even deserve. God, if you saw fit, it would be right and just to set this whole ball on fire today. God, you'd still be just as holy and loving and gracious uh, because you allowed us two minutes, two days, two years, 40 years to utilize your breath and blaspheme your name. But God, you are so patient and long-suffering. The goodness and the severity of God, the goodness and the long-suffering of God lead us men to repentance. God, you are gracious. And more than that, Father, you are gracious in the giving us of your Son. That you may take enemies, rebels, hostile towards God, walking in enmity with them, and make them subjects, sons of the Most High King. Father, we praise you that the gospel goes forth and raises dead men to life, of whom I am one. Father, we thank you that you open ears, that you open eyes, that you open hearts, and that you plant to the land, Father, more than we ever deserve. God, may we live in light of that today. May we ever seek, Father, to lay Christ before our own hearts and minds, and lay them before our families, and lay them before the world. God, may we have one message and one message alone, the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation. And men everywhere are to repent and believe. Why? Because you are worthy. And you have made uh, it possible, Father, through your word, um, as you desire. So 
God help us to preach the gospel fully, freely, and phenomenally with the joy in our hearts because you've given us a new heart with a song upon our lips because you created a tongue for that reason, for ears to hear that we may obey the voice of the Lord and with legs and hands that may work all the rest of the days of our lives, not to attain righteousness, but because we are righteous by faith, because of the graciousness we extend. So God, um, we pray that you would enable us for that work now. God, we're going to sing for you one more time. And if we haven't sung um, with tongues loosened to employ, God, let us do that now as we sing of the great work of Christ. In Jesus' name.